If you've missed our series, you know that our theme throughout started off with simply, why does it even need a series on prayer? We should be able just to talk to Jesus because he's our beloved. And I think that spoke to our hearts a little bit about really searching about our priorities and is Jesus really our beloved if we need books to learn how to speak to him. We also walked through the model of the Lord's Prayer because Jesus told us this is the way to pray. We've walked through it week after week because he gave us a model to follow and say, I know it's difficult to pray, or I know you're going to have questions about how to pray, so let me give you this model to follow. He was giving us priorities of prayer and things to do and walk through. Let's walk through those priorities one by one. In the first priority, our Father who art in heaven, you guys remember that, is our ability to first call out his name, know that he's the Father, and to proclaim his name holy. If you don't know what else to do, get down on your hands and knees and start there. Next is going to be the second priority. We start with a prayer for his holiness, and then we ask him for the kingdom to come. We studied that in our week on the kingdom, understanding that we are praying both for the salvation of the world through grace, at the same time we are praying that heaven come today. A simultaneous prayer that groans out for people to be saved, but that we also be reunited with God at the same time. The third priority is that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, So you can see this kind of progression from magnifying the Lord at the highest level to proclaiming the fact that his kingdom exists in all the world, that he has come to save the world, that we want to be with him. Step down next to the third priority of prayer to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about and struggled with what the Lord's will was for the world, for our lives. How do we know what the Lord's will is for us? How do we discern his will in our individual lives when we're walking around every day wondering what he wants us to do? So if you're one of those people who asks the great Christian question, what's the Lord's will for my life? Pick up that CD. It'll help you, guide you. And then we talked about the fourth priority. Finally, after you're done focusing on everything else that's important, we then say, give us this day our daily bread. We covered that last week, dealing with our personal needs. Not wants, but needs. We talked about the fact that give us this day was literally meant to be almost a reflection back on the Hebrews about how they received manna day by day. How the Lord just provided for them mysteriously, supernaturally, But the beauty of the whole thing was they couldn't hang on to it. They couldn't even keep his supernatural provision for more than one day. That it spoiled, it went bad, it quickly rotted. Because he wants to be the God who provides day after day. Meaning that we rely on him day after day. We can't even save up his provisions. We have to need him the next day. We are so far from that in America. We talked about last week. We're so far from that in the West where we don't even need him at all. We could go weeks without praying for our daily bread because we have bank accounts and savings and money and who knows what else. But the way he intended it was for us to need him and rely on him for our basic needs and to ask for them daily and to always be thankful for them when they were provided. So if you don't know what to pray, start with those four. Take any one of them. Okay, tonight we're going to talk about the ending. And you guys know it's forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does it mean, forgive us our debts? Who are we indebted to? What do we owe to God? The word debt is a very interesting word. I like the fact that it's a monetary transaction almost. Because first of all, it reminds us of something. We are indebted to God. Why are we indebted to him? What has he done for us? 
Well, one is, you know the language we use when we talk about Jesus. He bought and paid for our life. He freed us from the penalty of death. God's basic transactional formula is easy. You sin, you get the death penalty. You want to escape the death penalty, find someone to take your place. Who's going to take our place? Only Jesus. Because he's the only one that didn't sin and doesn't deserve the death penalty. So he dies in our place. Debts. What do we owe to God? Well, if you really want to get down to it, we owe him our entire life. We owe him everything. And what does he owe us? I put that up there because a lot of us sometimes, I think, inside, because we're human, we feel like God does owe us something. Like he owes us a blessed life somehow. Or he owes us the answer to our prayer. Because we prayed. And because we have faith. Or he owes us a life that's free from suffering. Or hardship. Because after all, we're his children, right? And that's not what God says at all. There are things in this world that we face and that we go through. And you know what? God doesn't owe us anything. It's exactly the opposite. When we say, forgive us our debts, we are, yes, we're talking directly about sin, but we're talking about a God who purchased our life. I like the financial terminology, like I said. Do you know when Jesus was on the cross, remember the last words he said before he hung his head? You may remember them? Father, forgive them. They do not what they do. I mean, he's forgiving even at the end. And then finally, as the spirit is going up, he says, it is finished. What's finished? Like you accomplish the task? You know, if you look behind the words that he uses when he says it is finished, some commentators have written that the word he specifically uses is a financial transaction term. It's almost like he says, it is paid in full. The debt has been satisfied. That's what he is literally saying when he says, it is finished. His death on the cross for us pays the debt. When we say, forgive us our debts, we're saying to Jesus, please forgive us our debts. And I think we should implore him to do that because it was a choice that he had to make. Remember that. You know, we have this thing about forgive and forget, but notice that God has to first forgive. It's an active verb. He does not just merely say, you know what, if you sin, it's okay, it'll eventually be wiped away. He actively forgives. In fact, he uses even stronger language than that. Psalm 103, 12, he says, he will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. I mean, he's removing actively our sins. He's not just saying, like, they just go away. He's acting to remove them. Isaiah 38, 17. Is it you that kept my soul from the pit of nothingness? He says, you have cast my sins behind your back. There's an action there. Like you chose to take them and put them behind you. Not to even see them anymore. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You were dead in your transgressions. And yet he canceled out our certificate of debt. That's the words that are used. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which were hostile to us. You know, when someone borrows money, you get a piece of paper. Anyone know what it's called? An IOU. An IOU, okay? As an attorney, we have, a more, we have a more elaborate word for that. We call them a promissory note, okay? Or, as Paul calls them, a certificate of debt. Go, Jill, I'd like to borrow 10000 bucks. You go, okay, great, here's the money. Sign here on this promissory note that you owe back the money. And then, again, the financial terminology keeps coming up. He just takes the debt and goes, it's canceled. 
Jesus talked about this in the parable of the indebted servant. And I want to just read this briefly just to kind of hone in what this debt is that we owe to Jesus. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 talents. The man was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife be he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So he was going to sell them into slavery to repay this debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled out the debt, and let him go. That's us. We owe so much. We've already sinned past the first sin. That qualifies us for the death penalty. We're done. And Christ says, I will choose to stand in your place and repay the debt. I will repay what you owe. Debt canceled. Not just past debts, but future debts. So when we come in the Lord's Prayer to say, forgive us our debts, it's more than just a mere passing phrase like, hey, I want some forgiveness. We're recognizing and remembering that we owe a tremendous debt to Christ and that he himself has canceled it out by his own life. Go to the next slide, Anthony, if you could. But there's a corollary to this. The Lord's Prayer says, as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's also a corollary in this parable that I just read you. You just saw the servant being forgiven of 10,000 talents. Here's what the servant does to thank his master for being forgiven. When the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. All right, if 10,000 talents is like a million bucks, a hundred denarii is like a hundred bucks. He grabbed the servant and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told the master everything that had happened. Imagine the scene. The master has just forgiven this guy of 10,000 talents because he begged him to, and he goes outside and looks around, he finds some guy standing out there who owes him a little bit of money, and he chokes him and says, give me the money. And he has him thrown in jail because he won't give him the money. That servant did the same exact thing. He fell to his knees and said, forgive me. And the wicked servant said, no. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over the jailer so he would be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus concludes the parable with this statement. This is how your heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. You know, we're really good at asking for forgiveness of our own sins. I know we're human and we want them erased and forgotten and east and west and all that stuff. But could it be that Jesus is actually saying that unless you forgive your brothers, unless you actually forgive others, you yourself may not earn forgiveness? 
I point that out because as you see up here, I think forgiveness is always coupled with some sort of repentance. There's always a notion that you've got to go a little bit further than just mouthing the words. There needs to be some repentance in your heart. Jesus gives us a commandment to forgive as we are being forgiven. And I don't want to read into his words too much, but this parable seems to say to me that maybe he was really saying, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. There are some of us that do not forgive easily. We think that we're worth so much more. You have to feel that way if you're this servant. You've just been forgiven of 10,000 whatever, and you feel like you have the right to go out and immediately demand it from somebody else. And when they beg for their life the way you begged for yours just five minutes before, you have no mercy. I mean, you must feel somehow that you're so much better than everyone else. And I think that's what prevents us from forgiving others is pride. But the lesson is pretty clear. Jesus is saying, forgive with a warning that maybe you won't be forgiven unless you do. What does that mean for our prayer life? It means that this priority in prayer means an examination of our hearts where we have to actually stop and think and say, who do I need to forgive? There are people that you may surprise you that you need to forgive. Maybe your definition of forgiveness was like the forgetfulness. I'll just kind of forget they exist and just move on. That's not forgiveness. Remember, God's forgiveness is an active forgiveness. He has, he's doing something to forgive it. Like taking sin as far as the east is from the west and having him run different directions or putting him behind his back so he can't see them. Our forgiveness generally is like, I just won't talk to that person anymore. Or no, 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 I forgive you, totally. And then we go tell everybody else what they've done. Hoping to get sympathy for, for what it is that we've been through. Or worse, we pretend we've forgiven that person. But in the moment when we're on our knees, we know that we haven't forgiven that person. You can't say that God's grace is bound by our actions. No. I'm saying that Jesus said, <laughs> don't listen to what I say. I think we tend to emphasize grace, and I'm one of them. You know me, I'm all in the grace camp. But it's too easy sometimes to say, that because I've been forgiven, no further action is required of me at all. And I think that that doesn't mean that your, your salvation is conditional on your action. It just means that having been forgiven, there are some things that we should be doing. And I think there's some warning against it because, you know, we've talked in here a number of times about the tension between how far can you go in being unrepentant before you are no longer really truly believing in your repentance or your salvation. And I don't want to rehash the whole thing. But he himself is saying, my Heavenly Father will treat you this way unless you forgive your brother. Anyone else want to weigh in? Brian? Um, You know, it goes back to to the disciples asked Jesus, like, how many times should we forgive? He just said forgive 77 times 7. Like, it's not like 1, 2, and 3. Okay, you know, you you, you you screwed me over five times. That's enough. It's enough. You know, he says, no, like, you know, you go... And you forgive as many times as it takes because that's the same way that we are with our, our Heavenly Father. Well, your comment about the 70 times 7 is good because actually Jesus tells this parable in response to that statement. Like just three verses before this parable, Peter is saying, how many times do I forgive my brother? And he says, this is how many times you forgive him. And let me give you a parable to explain the depth of why you need to be forgiving your brother. That's actually why he ends by saying, that, you know, unless you forgive your brother, because he's actually talking to Peter and telling him this parable. 
Ben? I think you're, you're really on something when you say by not forgiving him, he's, he's being very prideful. He's saying he is more glorious than God is. And I think fundamentally all sin comes down to acting like we have more glory than God. God doesn't, he isn't sovereign over everything. Look at the forgiveness that's going on in the peril, in the parable. I mean, you know, God loves using financial terminology because it's something that people understand. They understand money. And so he's using debts. He's using, like, you know, again, the it is finished language here. He's talking about certificate of cancellation of our debt. Here he's talking directly about canceling money. And he parallels them. Like, it's not like one guy got forgiven for one thing and then he didn't forgive for something else. And he goes, oh, yeah, I should have forgiven him. You're right. I got forgiven. Oh. I mean, it's the exact thing, and he does it almost immediately after being forgiven. It's almost like his responsiveness for being forgiven, he's like, Whew, I got to go out and get me, who owes me money now? Like, it's the exact opposite of what he should be doing. Instead of saying, everybody who owes me money is now also forgiven because I'm forgiven, he goes out and says, I need to worry about getting money so this never happens to me again. And he goes out and starts beating up the people that owe him money. It is pride. It is saying that what I can do is different. The way I'm treated by God, I deserve that. Nobody else deserves it from me. And that really is the deservedness part because I know that a lot of us, when we talked during our series on sex, we talked about intentional sin in the church and how many of us feel that we deserve to sin. How many of us feel that we're entitled to sin a little bit because we're so good everywhere else? That there's a part of our life that's allowed to sin. For some of us, it's sex. For other people, it's other areas. But it's like, but God, it's like being on that diet. I'm so good and everything else I do, I'm allowed this little piece of cheesecake over here. And God is like, it's an abomination to me that you sin. I don't allow it anywhere. And it's, it's bad enough that I had to die to forgive you in the first place. And you're down there on earth saying, yeah, but like 95% of my life is really good. I kind of deserve this little one over here. Leave me alone. And that's kind of what this person's doing. I deserve to be forgiven because I'm a good servant. I even though I owe you tens of millions of dollars. I deserve it. But nobody else deserves it like me. And I'll go beat up anybody who sins the same way against me. Totally wrong. A lot of us have things, and I don't mean to, by the way, brush under the rug some of the harder things to forgive that are like difficult, you know, dealing with like abuse and past relationships and stuff. But we just have to remember that God's forgiveness is active. And we in the church tend to come up with a more passive version, which is just like going the other way. And then Jesus concludes with this Lead us not into temptation but delivers from evil. This is a sensitive topic for some Christians because if they really stop and they look at the words, they go, what do you mean? Are you in God in the business of leading us into temptation? Lead us not into temptation. First of all, let's look at the words lead us. Like I said, it's really meaning like don't let us fall into, don't let it be brought upon us, don't let us be dragged into. It's not like Jesus is out there with the, the shepherd's rod that you remember from like the nice Sunday school pictures going, come on, let's go to temptation, guys. Let's, you know, move that way, all right? It's not that kind of leading. Okay, it's, the, it's the way that it's been translated. That's not, that's not exactly the way it was used. But let's look at the word temptation because that also has a couple meanings. There's two types of temptation. The word temptation is used interchangeably in the Bible to mean two different things. Trials that we face on earth and also temptations that we think of when we think of Satan tempting us into evil. Let me give you a couple examples of why I say temptation is a trial that we face. James 1.12, Blessed is a man who endures temptation. That can't really mean temptation like, hey, blesses a man who stands and hangs out with the devil while he's tempting us. He's really saying, blesses a man who goes through trials and comes out on the other end 
safely. In fact, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because God sometimes puts us through these trials for our better good. If your God doesn't encompass a God who puts people to the test sometimes, think about it. Didn't he test Abraham when he said, Hey, go up to the mountain, give me your son Isaac. I want to see what's going to happen here. You know, he tested Job or allowed him to be tested in many, many ways. He withheld his hand and said, yes, go test him. It's okay. I give you permission to test my servant Job. He allowed Jesus to be tempted in the desert. All of these things, remember, when we talked about God's will, he has, he is sovereign. He is in control of everything. So that means he allows these things to take place. He withholds his hand and says, yes, I will allow that to happen. It could not happen if it wasn't for the will of the Lord. When Jesus talked about the parable of sowing the seeds, he said that there were going to be some people who believe for a little while and in a time of temptation fall away. When the disciples asked him later what the parable meant, when he described what the time of temptation was, he said that's a time of affliction. It's a time of persecution. So we know that temptation in this prayer sometimes means don't bring us into those trials those hardships in life, those persecutions. Remember to the early church, this was going to become very relevant as most of them who were professing their faith and reciting this prayer were facing a lion or somebody else that was about to kill them. So they were literally praying, don't lead us into the temptations that are the trials of life, but also it has the other meaning. Lead us not into temptation, the temptation to sin, the temptation to do that which is evil. Like, Don't even bring it towards us. Almost in the way that we'd say, yes, we know that Job was allowed to be tested in that way. Don't, don't even do that to us, lest we might fail. Don't even take us there. There are plenty of people who were led there throughout the Bible and failed. Even men who later succeeded, or people who succeeded and then later failed. Just, I'd rather I didn't even have this, Lord. Lead me not in temptation. Don't let this fall upon me. And finally, deliver us from evil. Deliver us, easy to understand, rescue us, set us free, our alternate meanings of this word, from evil. Again, two types of evil, very parallel to the same things with, with temptation and trials. There's situational evil and there's moral evil. In the Bible, we hear evil used in different ways. Like, for example, in Isaiah 45, 7, the Lord declares, I am the one forming the light and creating darkness, Causing well-being and creating evil. What? Did the Lord just admit that he's the one that created evil? No. It doesn't mean that. The alternative words in different translations are creating calamity. Creating disaster. Allowing natural occurrences. So what the Lord is saying is, I am sovereign. Nothing happens without me. I form the light. I create the darkness. I create everything that's good. And I create everything that's calamitous. Evil is used in a way to show that there are things in life that just are bad, like earthquakes, things like that that are just situational. There's also moral evil, which is the one that we usually think of when we think of sin. Like in Mark 7.21, when Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. He's talking about evil sin. Wrapping it all up, what Jesus is saying tonight is, lead us not into those places that have trial, tribulation, and tempt us to sin. 
Don't let those things fall upon me. Don't take me there. Don't allow them to happen. But if they do, hopefully I'll get out of it on the other end and I'll be blessed more for it because I passed the trial. If you balance it with what James is saying. And definitely deliver me, rescue me, save me, keep me from the evil things in life. Whether they be the natural disasters of the world, whether they be the things that people bring upon themselves, or whether they really be the moral evil that's caused by sin and my temptation to sin. Andrew. goal is to have me grow closer and closer to him. And the way that you do that is to put me in trust, to chastise me, to stretch me and make me a stronger person. You're on to something which is very important. God does discipline his children for their own good. And if he did not love us, he would not discipline us. But I think there's a heart in this prayer that's crying out that knows wisdom better than where we are, which says, while I would grow through your trials and may I be pleasing to you by succeeding in those trials and be blessed for it, I would rather not go through them at all, lest I be found weak and not able to go through them. I mean, that's what I feel like the cry of this prayer is. The same way that Jesus said, if there's a way to let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. It's a very honest prayer that like reaches from within the heart that says, I'd rather not be tested and found weak. Don't lead me into those places. And not just the trials that are good for me to overcome. Like if I say, sacrifice your only son, and then the, the rams and the bush and everything's okay. But the ones that are like just difficult to go through that shake our faith to their foundation and stuff, that's what he's basically saying. It's okay for you to pray these things. We Remember, we also said that sometimes the Lord's will is for us to go through things. But that never should mean that we should feel locked in and say, well, if it's the Lord's will, there's nothing I can do to do it. And we see examples throughout the Bible of people who prayed things and God did change his mind sometimes. Or we at least see him saying, like we've talked about before, that he told the widow, pester the judge until he gives you what you want. So I guess I I hear what you're saying, and I believe in it, that we should welcome it if it's a way for him to grow us. But I think the more, I don't want to say the more mature angle of it, but maybe the more person who's gone through the fire a few times might be saying, yeah, blessed is for me going through the fire, but I never want to do that again. And I'd rather not have done it at all if I could pass somehow because it's a hard way to grow. Isn't there a class or a CD I could have instead instead of going through all these trials? Because I'd rather go that way. And I think Jesus in his wisdom is saying, I think most of us would rather go that way. You know? And if it's not going to happen, hey, there's nothing you can do. You're going, you're going through it. Uh, Ryan hit on the nail. The temptation is not from God because you have to take it in context. I mean, he's talking about evil in the next line then there is a correlation between temptation and evil. But if there's temptation from the evil one, then it's two different, two different uh, aspects. And Satan's, uh, Satan's uh, reason is to make us fall away from God so that we don't have forgiveness with God. Yeah, so let's, let's make sure we're clear on that. God can put us through trials. If temptation means trials as it's used, he can put us through trials. But he's not going to tempt us to sin. But God's role is, remember, is to allow under his sovereign will to like withhold and allow Satan to come and tempt. And that's the one where sometime we could spend a whole hour on that. Like, why would God ever do that in the first place, you know? All right. I'm hoping that you gained a priority of prayer because I know a lot of us are so inwardly focused sometimes. We know it's not right, but sometimes we don't know what else we should be praying for. And now we know. We have a model. 
the holiness of God, his kingdom, his will. Those are like huge things. I remember when we studied thy kingdom come, just saying those three words, just struggling with what those three words meant, literally speaking them, how much we were invoking in the kingdom by speaking those three words. And then following up with thy will be done, even like more powerful. Would I pray the Lord's Prayer every night is the only prayer? No, he's giving you a road map. But you know what we don't do in the evangelical church? We never pray it out loud. We never pray it at all. It's kind of like we study it, we look at it, but we don't really pray the Lord's Prayer. I think once in a while it's not a bad idea for you to get down on your hands and knees and pray the Lord's Prayer. I believe God's Word has power. One of the lazy things we do in this group that I think we need to work on is we tend to paraphrase the Bible a lot. Uh, there's this one place where it says like the following, and we like butcher the verse. You know, we need to be better at that. We need to actually know the real verse and where it's located. Not just so we can help other people find it, but because God's word has power. He spoke them. They were divinely inspired. So when Jesus said, here's a model for prayer, we should follow it. When he said, pray these words, I think once in a while we should literally just pray the words. Just like once in a while it's good to memorize scripture and where it's located so we can actually repeat the actual words of Christ instead of our kind of like remembrance of what they might be. And finally, as I said last week, I'm kind of proud of at least one thing we've done as a group because we always come at everything from a different angle and we always kind of tend to rock the boat a little bit from traditional ways. And that is that we spent time really analyzing the nature of our hearts. And that's what I opened in prayer with, is that we would be moved, not with all this knowledge, not so you can walk around going, do you know what it really means, temptation, when you're in the Lord's Prayer? I mean, that's, that's good for us to know. It's good for our own prayer life. It's good for us to understand Jesus' words the way he intended them to be understood. But that knowledge is just kind of mere foolishness if it hasn't affected our heart. For me, I told you, my confession at the beginning of this was, I don't pray enough. I don't pray nearly enough. Because somewhere in my life, somewhere along the line, my communication with Jesus broke down. And while I know him so well, and I could tell you so many things about him, and I could recite so many great, amazing things, I rarely sit down and have a conversation with him. This prayer was intended to cover that as well. But there's still that missing element of asking ourselves in our hearts, Jesus why is it that I just don't want to talk to you all day long? If you're really as magnificent as I think you are, if you're really my savior, if you really died in my place, if you're my savior, if you're my God, if you're my king, if you're my master, if you're my friend, if you're every adjective, every noun, and every pronoun that we use to kind of articulate who God is for us, why do I have to go through a six-week series and read a whole bunch of books just to learn to talk to you? Jesus, I, I want to fall in love with you again and just talk to you freely and have that open conversation with you. Yes, I'm going to follow this model. Yes, I'm going to do this. But most importantly, I want the desire back in my heart to come home from whatever I'm doing or even while I'm doing it and go, hey, Lord, I just want to check in with you. Guess what I'm doing right now? The way that I get cell phone calls throughout the day and talk to my friends, the way I go out with them on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever. The way I hang out with you guys afterwards. We just go out, we hang out, we have food. Nobody has to give me a book on how to talk to you. I want to feel that way about Jesus. Where when I have a few minutes of time, I go, yes, I have a few minutes of time right now. I can talk to Jesus right now. Let's pray for that to happen. Lord, you gave us this model. Your words are holy. They have meaning. I pray, Lord, that we would be excited by your prayers the way you gave it to us. And that we would truly understand the immense wisdom behind each word. And then we should put that aside and find our heart to love you again. Lord, I pray for each person here. 
I can pray with confidence that not a single person among us feels that they pray enough. And Lord, take away the guilt. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about one more thing that we have to do in our spiritual checklist. Lord, this is just a free gift that you gave us because we're your children. Because we're sons and daughters of the king, having been bought and purchased by you, we get the privilege of speaking to you. And better yet, you tell us that you listen to every word, that you care about every hair on our head. That like a father, you guide and challenge our lives. You lead us sometimes into discipline. You give us and shower us great gifts. But all the while, Lord, you're there walking beside us, eager to hear what is on our mind, eager to dialogue with us. Lord, you told us even just to ask you for whatever it is we wanted. And like a father, you're there to give. I pray for the kind of faith and the kind of heart to want to do that with you. So tonight, Lord, we lay this at your feet, this series that we've just concluded. May it have been honoring to you to study your word. Most importantly, Lord, may we walk out of here tonight with an inkling that you are walking right beside us, that you're eager for us to open our mouths and begin the dialogue, that you can't wait to hear what it is that we have to say, and, Lord, that you can't wait to respond. Give me that kind of life, Lord, one where I walk and talk with you, and take everything else away, Lord. I dare to pray that tonight. In your precious name, amen.